we pray for it, we desire it, and yet virtually every day of our lives we're reminded that it is something that is not perfectly attainable in every arena of our life. It is what we've been seeing about a lot tonight. It is peace. Whether it's international or national conflicts, whether it's struggles within our, our homes and our families, or even whether it's just struggles within ourselves, we, we face all kinds of things. Few of us live with perfect peace for any length of time. Because that's true, we can sometimes struggle with the concept of what peace really means when we read about it in Scripture. Because when we think of peace, so often all we think about is just a lack of conflict. It's, it's peace as opposed to war or peace as, as opposed to, to conflict. But when we read about the concept of peace in the Bible, we're really reading about something that's far, far deeper. It's not just a lack of con, uh, conflict. In fact, the kind of peace that Scripture talks about is something that can go on within one's life even in the midst of conflict and a time of difficulty. That's one among a whole lot of reasons why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7 that it's the kind of peace that passes all understanding. The world doesn't know that kind of peace. All they can think about is peace as opposed to conflict. We know we can have true peace even in times of turmoil and difficulty and conflict. But I think it's safe to say that we all want peace. The commentator Matthew Henry once said, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it except truth or but truth. That's the only thing he says I would not give in exchange for that kind of peace. We need to understand that depth of the concept of peace, that it's really that important and really something that is deep down our lives. And we need to understand it because when we understand that, then and only then can we really understand even our Lord. The Bible describes our Savior as the Prince of Peace. But then we read of so much conflict in His life. It describes as one who, who brought peace, but how often do we see Him even saying things like there would be some who would be against one another because of Him. Father against son, or father-in-law against son-in-law, mother against daughter, and all those things. We have to understand what He is talking about. It's true that there will be conflict, not because that's His desire but because some would believe and some would not believe, and some would even hate. In reality, Jesus is the answer to all conflict. You've probably driven by a whole bunch of marquees outside of church buildings that have something like that on the front of them, no Jesus, no peace, and then the N-O and the word K-N-O-W is sometimes uh, pulled out, no Jesus, no peace. You've probably seen that, and sometimes we see things like that. It seems almost trite, and it seems almost trite to say, well, of course, Jesus is the answer to all conflict. What, what else do you expect a preacher to say, right? That's the obvious answer. But Scripture bears that out. If all people would truly follow Jesus in both attitude and action, peace would reign in our world. I appreciate so much the prayer that we were led in just a few moments ago. We prayed again, as we pray often, that there will be peace on earth. Folks, the only way that will ever happen is when Jesus reigns in the hearts of all people. That's the only way that will ever happen. If we ever could get there, conflict would cease. In the early church... Just as is the, is the case now, there were certain differences that at times threatened various congregations. And I want you to turn back to the book of Ephesians. We're going to spend all of our time in that text that John Robert read for us a few moments ago so well. 
Today, in our, our day and time, it might be differences of race or culture or different things. But in the first century, the, one, the, the difference we read about the most is the difference between those who have been raised in the Jewish faith and those who hadn't, often just simply called Gentiles. There were some who have been Jews their whole life. But then upon learning about Christ and learning about obeying him, they realized that he is the one that was talked about in the Old Testament. And so they wanted to continue to follow God and be obedient to God. And so they they gave up that Jewish faith for the Christian faith. But there were others, even in the same congregations, who had not been Jews. Some were very pagan, even to the point of worshiping idols and being involved in cultic practices. But then they came to a faith in Jesus and they too followed him. And so, naturally, there could be a friction. Some have been faithful to the God of heaven their whole lives, even willing to give up that Jewish heritage in order to become Christians. Others maybe had never even heard of the God of heaven until, until they heard about Christ. But certainly, if they had, they hadn't followed Him. They'd done everything else. And so they literally made a 180-degree transformation, giving up false gods and all sorts of things to become Christians. And there could be a friction. We've been faithful to God of heaven our whole lives, and you haven't. Or I've come to Christ from a very pagan background. You didn't have to change all that much. You follow the God of heaven for your whole life. And so we read about that constantly in the New Testament. If you don't believe me, by the way, sit down and read the book of Romans in one sitting. In reality, that's a massive portion of what that whole book is about. But Paul addresses it as well in the book of Ephesians. And I want us tonight to use for our one word, the word peace tonight, A study of Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to see how Paul truly does make Jesus the answer to how Christians can have peace. He says in the first place that Jesus made peace. There's a strong emphasis throughout the book of Ephesians on the little word one. If you ever can sit down and read these six chapters in a single setting, you're going to see that little word, O-N-E, one, a lot of times. Maybe the most famous place in this book where you see it is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where you have those seven ones. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all those things that are listed there. But Paul comes back to that concept of one over and over again, and quite often he does that to talk about the unity of believers. Notice what he writes in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15. For he, that is Jesus, is our peace, and here it is, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Twice in those verses you see that word one. And both times that word is used, it emphasizes the the coming together of people. It is emphasizing unity and peace. And then at the end of that reading you see that beautiful phrase, so making peace. It's as if Paul was saying that if it were not for the cross, if it were not for what Christ did, there would always be at least friction, if not division, even possibly hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But Christ made peace. But there's more than that. Because did you notice the way that's worded? So making peace. Not just so he made peace, but so making peace. The reason it's worded that that way is that it conveys the idea that the peace is an ongoing process. It's written in such a way that it's always present. The peace that Christ made on the cross is is a one-time event because He died once, but the peace that He gives is an ongoing effect or an ongoing result. When people will go back to the cross, peace will be the result. One of the things that was prophesied quite often about 
Christ in the Old Testament was that he would bring peace. In the book of Isaiah, it's talked about many times. I have a reference on the screens before you of one of those times. In Isaiah chapter 57, I've got verses 18 through 21 listed up there, but just listen to the beginning of that reading. He said, I have sent him, I have seen, excuse me, his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him, to his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The key to that prophecy is where it says, peace to the far and to the near. Keep that in mind for something we'll say in just a moment. But to the Jewish reader, the ones who heard Isaiah say that originally, that could have really only meant one thing. The near were those who were Jews because they were near to God. They were in covenant with God. The far then would have been Gentiles or pagans. There is peace between Jew and Gentile because of what Christ would do. The only way that could ever happen would be for God to make it so. And Christ did exactly that. When he took the Old Testament law away and nailed it to the cross, he provided the perfect and only way for unity and peace to dwell among all people. With all the differences we might see, we can always rally around the cross and know that peace can be made. Christ makes peace. But also, Paul would tell us, that Jesus preached peace. Before Jesus ever went to the cross, he had already said that he was bringing peace. Notice verse 17 of our text. Paul said, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Does that sound familiar from that prophecy from Isaiah? Far off and near. Now we could push back against that a little bit and say, wait a minute, when Jesus was here on the earth, didn't he spend a vast majority of his time with Jewish people? Yes, he did. But there are a couple of ways we know that he still was preaching uh, preaching peace, easy for me to say, to those who were near and to those who were far. For one thing is, he didn't spend all of his time with the Jews. You might think of John chapter 4, where he spoke to that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he dealt with her just like he would deal with anybody else because she needed peace in her life. And so he would deal with a Gentile, one who was not a Jew. But you also could say that because how often did Jesus tell those who followed him, that this message was not just for the Jews. You might think of what he said before he went back into heaven. And you think of the Great Commission, words like all nations and all of the earth or into all the world. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he told them to go begin in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Doesn't sound like he just wanted the Jews to hear the truth, does it? He wanted everyone even to the ends of the earth to hear the truth. But again, notice that Paul writes that Jesus preached peace to those who were near and those who were far. He preached peace to Jews and Gentiles. If that's pointing to the effect of the cross, then where true peace is found, then we even see it mentioned in the ministry of Christ himself. If you want to turn over there, you can see it in John chapter 12. As the time was drawing near for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross, a voice from heaven said in John 12 and verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And following that voice, Jesus says these words in John 12 beginning in verse 30. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up or when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, we could read that if we didn't know what the next verse said and say, well, 
being lifted up from the earth. Maybe he's talking about when he ascends back into heaven. But John adds a little commentary, doesn't he? In John 12, 33, when he said, He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus was talking about being lifted up on the cross. And he says when that happens, he doesn't just say, I'll draw all Jews unto myself. I will draw all people unto myself. Draw all. He was preaching peace. By the way, there's a point of application I think we need to make in our own lives here. If preaching peace is preaching the cross, then folks, we had better be telling people about the cross. That's what people need to hear about. That's the answer to the problems in our world, in our own lives, in our congregations, and anybody else's life. The answer is the cross. When we take people to the heart of the gospel, we are preaching peace by preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what will draw people to peace. Jesus makes peace. Jesus preached peace. And then Paul would tell us that Jesus holds peace together. I love the picture that Paul draws for us at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 about the church. Since he's been talking to to Jews and Gentiles who are now all Christians, he wants them to see that this isn't meant to be a one-time thing. It's not just meant to be some kind of passing fad, just get along on Sunday or just get along for a little season of life. And so he begins to talk about them in verse 19 as the household of God. And then he continues, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the emphasis about this peace continuing on? I love that imagery of a household or a building. If you were going to build a a house or any other structure, the key is the foundation, right? If, If that's wrong, nothing else is really going to be right. It may look okay, but it's not really going to be right if that foundation isn't proper. If you're going to have a a sturdy and a safe building, Paul writes that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, the teachings of Scripture, if you want to think of it that way. But did you notice then that he said the cornerstone is Jesus himself in verse 20? That is an important distinction to be made. One thing, when you build an important structure in that day and that time, you didn't do anything else until you had the cornerstone that was needed and had it perfectly in place. It had to be straight, it had to be plumb, it had to be level, it had to be laid in just the right way. Now, usually, cornerstones are more decorative. Not in that day and time. You didn't continue the structure until that cornerstone was laid exactly where it needed to be, and you knew it was strong enough to support the weight that would be on top of it. Because if that cornerstone was not proper, the lines would be out of line, they wouldn't be straight, things would not be built upward in the right way, the foundation could be uh, unsturdy, The cornerstone was indescribably important. It's to be laid straight, level, strong. And so that's what Christ is for the church. And it's an ongoing effect. How can the church have unity and peace when you've got Jew and Gentile? You've got all these differences. The answer really is Jesus. Instead of focusing on the differences, we build on Christ and we lean on Him. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. I love this congregation, I love, I love the church at large, but, but too often there are people and congregations and things who are just fragmented and don't have peace, and there's a lot of reasons why that can be true. But there's one thing we must always keep in mind. 
too often when a congregation or when a group of Christians lacks unity and lacks peace, it's because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves. I want what I want. I want things to go my way. I want my group of people to get its own way. When folks, the answer is to go back to Christ and lean on Him and build on Him and make certain that we are following His way when we come to worship together and when we see each other out in the world. There is a personal side to all this to be sure. But if you want church unity, that's where we start. We start with the cornerstone and build upon Him. Because if we don't, it will crumble and fall. Jesus continues to bring peace. Now with those things in mind, I want you in your Bible, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to go back to the very first phrase of verse 14 and see how powerful it is because Paul then reminds us that Jesus is our peace. Verse 14 begins with that phrase, For He Himself is our peace. Jesus does not just make peace, although He does. He did not just preach peace, although He did. He does not just hold peace together, although He does. Paul says He is our peace. And by the way, he had already said something very similar earlier in this book. You may have to turn back one page or just glance across the page. But look back in Ephesians and notice chapter 1, what he wrote in verses 7 through 10. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, and here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. That's powerful. Everything finds its unity in Christ. That's in Ephesians 1. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, in our text, Paul was illustrating that for the church and saying that the only reason you could have peace in their context between Jew and Gentile was because of Christ. He is our peace. But why is that true? You ready to dig just a little bit in your text and see something very beautiful? Paul references in that same text in verse 14, put your eyes on it, that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he did that, verse 15, by fulfilling the Old Testament law, by nailing it to the cross and all those things. But think about that picture of a dividing wall. For some, that brings to mind that veil in the temple that was torn when Christ was crucified. And that's possibly what Paul has in mind, but I think there's something even deeper here. Because he talks not about a veil, he talks about a wall. You may remember Under the Old Testament law, they built the tabernacle and later the temple. And part of that temple included a court. It was known as the court of the Gentiles. They could come near the temple, the court area. They could bring sacrifices. They could pray. But they were never allowed to intermingle with the Jews in their courts and their areas. And in fact, between them was a wall. It was a a wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. Archaeologists tell us it was about four and a half feet tall. And archaeologists have even found literally two signs and suggest there may have been others that on the signs carried death threats if a Gentile was to try to cross the wall and intermingle with the Jews. If they were to leave their court and go across the wall into the Jewish courts and Jewish part of the temple. What is Paul saying? 
when he says that Jesus tore down the wall of hostility. He's saying that because of Christ, we don't have those walls anymore. There is no Jew or Gentile. There's no death warnings for male or female. There's no spiritual difference between rich and poor, slave and free, educated or uneducated, married or single, old or young. Christ is our peace. It's the only reason a church can get along with one another. That every member of a church can get along with one another is because those differences are gone when we meet at the cross. Christ is the peace, is our peace. But may I suggest to you that there is one area of life where there will always be a difference. Not because Christ lacks the ability to heal it or to cure it, but because we allow it to be so. It may have seemed in their minds, those who originally received this letter from Paul, it may have seemed in their mind like there was just a chasm of difference between Jew and Gentile. But he says, look, because of Christ, you're all one. Christ makes the peace. Christ preached peace, brought you all together. Christ is your peace. That's not a big deal for Christ to bring Jew and Gentile together. That's not a problem at all. And we could look at all sorts of other differences and say, well, there's cultural differences, there's racial differences. We could say that's a chasm. No, Christ can bring peace among those things. But if we choose, in our own way of doing things, there will always be a difference between lost and saved. It's not because Christ can't break that down. It's because we choose to stay lost and choose to become at peace with God among the saved. But why would you choose that? We live in a world of so much turmoil, so much difficulty, You can't turn on the news or turn on the internet and read the news and and not see that. You can barely walk up and down the streets and not see that. And sometimes we we can't even leave our house and we we have these things in our minds and they just bother us and it's just inner turmoil. Those things are going to happen. We we realize that peace is, is never going to be perfect in this life so long as Christ doesn't reign over all people's lives. They don't allow Him to be the Lord of their life. But we can choose to have the kind of peace that passes all understanding if we will allow Him to save us. Peace, perfect peace. In this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace, perfect peace, by thronging duties pressed to do the will of Jesus, this is rest. Peace, perfect peace, with sorrows surging round On Jesus' bosom, not the calm is found. Peace, perfect peace, with loved ones far away. In Jesus' keeping, we are safe, and they. Peace, perfect peace, our future all unknown. Jesus we know, and He is on the throne. It is enough. Earth's struggles soon shall cease. And Jesus call us to heaven's perfect peace. My favorite line in that song is peace, perfect peace with sorrow surging round because that's the world we live in. The world cannot understand how we can be at peace with so much difficulty, but it's because of Christ. He makes peace. He preached peace. He continues to bring peace. And for those who are saved, He is our peace. All that's left for me to do tonight is ask, is He your peace? Have you made peace with Him 
by becoming obedient to His will and living within that will. He's promised that if you'll come to Him and give your life to Him, turning from sin, confessing Him as Lord, and being baptized in water, He has promised He'll save you from your sins, and that should bring an immense level of peace because those things are forgotten. They're remembered no more. And maybe as a Christian, there's something in your life that's keeping you from having that peace that passes all understanding. He's promised to forgive. He's promised to walk with you and help you and aid you. And we would love nothing more than to take your hand and help in that process, to pray with you, to encourage you, to do what we can, to provide you comfort so that we can all be one and together and at peace with each other and with our God. Tonight, whatever your need is, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.